When looking at the Turnpin family, you see 13 children that were abused and tortured, and we ask, how did this happen? How did it go undetected? How did these children live so long with this level of neglect? We want an answer, one that makes sense, one that justifies why two parents would do all of this and more to the children they had, the children that they dreamed of having. What we have learned was there was not one reason for any of this. There isn't one defining moment in history that stood out and said, Hi, I'm right here, and this is why all these horrible things had to happen. Yet, here we are, still looking for that one thing. Rick Ross, founder and executive director of the Colt Institute Education Center, thinks that he found that one thing we're all looking for, and it's a family cult. We went back in David's history to his great-grandfather, King Joshua Turpin Sr., looking at the level of extreme that the men in David Turpin's family tend to take when it comes to defining their faith and their disciplinarian-style control. Each of the men followed their father to a T, in an extreme, to control children, to become the leader of a family. David wasn't any different, just because his father learned from some of the mistakes of his father and his grandfather, David was equipped with the characteristics to becoming a mastermind, a leader. And when he chose to love young Louise and her dream of having a big family, it brought him the followers he needed to feel empowered. And when Louise would turn to him to make sure she ruled the children as David wanted, he found everything he needed to dominate. He just had to perfect his domination. Louise Turnpin dreamed of having a big family surrounding herself with children that would love her simply because she was their mother. This pure love was something she was entitled to, or so she thought. What she never accounted for was the responsibility that came with a big family. Her mother coped these responsibilities by offering her, Louise, up to her father for money. Louise's innocence was sold, and for that she resented everyone that allowed it to happen. Her grandfather was able to keep on doing what he wanted without the police ever getting involved. So in order to escape the abuse, she traded in one for another, her husband. What she learned by marrying David, a man that longed for her since she was 10 years old, is that she held power as well. David loved her more than any person in her life, and as long as she controlled the children as he saw fit, she was free to go and please and do as she wanted, even if that meant that she trashed their finances over and over again. Together, these two grew a cult with the people they brought into this world. Slowly, each child was taught to spy on the others as a way of survival, this showed David and Louise that they didn't have to hover to maintain their control. Jennifer was the only child to ever be enrolled in the public school system before David realized how much control he could have if his children were homeschooled. Finally, they slowly cut the children off from the outside world. Each cut David and Louise waited for. They needed a moment to justify the newest cut. But eventually, they were presented each and every time with something they could twist to fit their justifications. 
David and Louise slowly formed a family cult that may have not been the label they chose, but it's the label that fits and gives us all an answer to justify something of this magnitude. Welcome to the True Crime Librarian. I'm your librarian and host, Ashley. Tonight, we continue on looking at the timeline of the Turpin family's history and watch as the torture, abuse, and manipulation continues as the children continue to get worse and worse with each passing year. The level of control that David and Louise had over their children was a powerful and strong. Strong enough to allow their mother and father to move away from ten of the children and didn't fear they would try to run or get help. Powerful enough that David and Louise could travel without fear of being turned over to authorities for the way their children were living and being treated. David and Louise never feared the consequences because the level of fear they had instilled in the children was all-consuming. David stuck by his wife as she slipped into a midlife crisis. She was drinking, partying, doing things that she was always taught were a sin in the church of Pentecostal. So in order to avoid the guilt that was taught for committing these sins, David and Louise searched for a church that wouldn't condemn them for their actions. Whatever it took to justify their decisions, all except the way that they were treating the children they had, all because of a dream for a big family. Warning, this episode contains graphic detail of child abuse, torture, and adult language. Listeners' discretion is advised. If you feel like any of this may be too much for you, have someone listen with you or for you. Good evening, all of my true crime nerds. We have just a little bit of housekeeping to get to tonight before we get started. Just a reminder that next week is the season four finale in the closeout to Behind Closed Doors. Make sure you're following TTCL on your favorite podcast platform or over on YouTube. Hit that subscribe button. Patreon is up and running, so head over there and check that out. The bonus show, The Librarian After Dark, will continue to air all summer long. Lastly, do not forget to show some love to the show by sharing, reviewing, and recommending TTCL to other nerds like yourself. This is the best way to support the show so that I can continue to bring you even more episodes on the cases you are wanting to hear. You can support the show through Patreon or by heading over to thetruecrimelibrarian.com, making a one-time donation, or snagging some TTCL merch. Okay, you guys, and enough of this. Let's get to what you all came here for. 
the true crime. Last week, we watched as David and Louise had child after child, only to turn them into victims dependent on them. With each child, they cut ties to the outside world so that the children were neither seen nor heard. Louise boasted about them to everyone that listened, boasted about how they handled their finances, good or bad, and their living situation continued to deteriorate around them. But as long as Louise and David had complete control, everything seemed to be the best that it could be for them. For their children, they watched as mother and father continued to buy all of these things that looked like it was for them, only to have them go day in and day out, never once getting to have or play with any of these things. In Christmas of 2001, David's parents, David and Betty, visited the home in Rio Vista on Hill County Road. Both maintained that they never seen anything that warranted them to intervene in the way that Louise and David were raising the children or with the lifestyle at the home. So again, we question, what did the home look like in these visits? Were there animal feces everywhere? Were the carpets caked with dirt and grime? Did the walls display what looked like feces smeared all over the place? Did the home smell horribly? All of these questions rise because of what we know in hindsight, how this family lived, how they left their homes when they moved them, when they moved from them. Why did the family visits never warranted either side of the family to take charge or point out Louise's poor housekeeping skills? Or did the children work hard prior to the visits to clean the filth away that they had grown accustomed to living in? This is something I'm having a hard time understanding about this case because of the the way these homes were left. And then you hear that people lived with them, people visited. How did they not see how bad this was? That It had to have been cleaned. It had to have been, right? After the Turpins visited their grandchildren, Louise's younger half-brother came to visit the family early of 2002. He never expected to hear what his nieces and nephews went through, and it only seemed to break when there were visits with the family. David had a great job. His annual salary was in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. He made more than enough that his family could not want for anything. And with family visiting them, these kids didn't want for anything as the outward appearance. The family seemed to live in a very affluent lifestyle. David and Louise showered the kids and family with gifts and food to hide the fact that every other time of the year when there wasn't outsiders in the home, that she would starve her children. They would never touch any of the gifts or toys, and they reverted back to wearing the same clothes day in and day out with only having a one shower a year. What Louise's brother did notice was that the children were well-behaved. They lined up for each outing in a straight line, stood at attention in their line before they were allowed to climb into the family's minibus. The children were dressed alike when they went out on these outings, but the big thing was that was noticeable was they didn't act like the children surrounding them. They didn't laugh and giggle. They didn't horse play. Instead, they looked like they had been trained by the military. But again, he says nothing. Nothing comes from this. 
because he just figures, you know, David, he's working for the United States government, even one time having worked on Air Force One during the Clinton administration. So Louise's brother really didn't think any more of the children's behavior leaving it be. But should, because during the visit, he did notice that the older Turnpin children barely spoke or even acknowledged that he was in the room or the house. Louise's brother would never be invited back to visit the Turpins' Rio Vista home. Later in 2002, Louise gave birth to her and David's ninth child, a son they named James. In 2003, following the birth, the Turpins were involved in a neighborhood dispute. Their 300-pound pigs escaped from their land and ate about 50 pounds of dog food from a neighbor's house. The neighbor had discharged his firearm to scare the pigs, but it didn't help much. And eventually the Hill County Sheriff's Office was called out to handle the dispute. David promised to pay for the dog food and smoothed everything out. The case was dropped and it wouldn't be long before another animal broke out and searched for food. Later in 2003, Louise would give birth to their 10th child, Joanna after which they sent photos of the family back home to Princeton, West Virginia. Louise's father was proud of his grandchildren, praising them and gushing about them no matter who was there to listen. He absolutely adored the family Louise had. Had he had any idea what his daughter was actually doing, he may have had other things to say. Alan was able to visit for one last time when the family lived in Rio Vista, so the photos that she would send back were his way of maintaining, keeping up with them all. The photos were of all the children dressed in matching outfits. This was one of Louise's favorite things to do to the children to simulate that they were all doing well. Questions were briefly brought up about the children's lanky appearances, but Louise explained that David was lanky during his youth and that all of the children were simply just taking after him. This explanation was gladly accepted and nothing was ever said again. Louise and David had a very active social life. They were often seen around town, dining out in Cleborn. Many remember that it was always just Louise and David. They never seen the children be brought with them. One of the places they frequented was the Billy Bob Rodeo. For those of you not from Texas or not familiar with this, um, area in Fort Worth. Billy Bob's is the biggest bar in the area. The fan favorite at the Starkyards, Legends, and Country Music World have played there and attended the rodeo events. And David and Louise loved it there. They frequently were seen in attendance at the rodeo. In May of 2004, a new double wide was pulled up to the Turpin property about 150 yards from the home. He laid above ground water lines from the house to the trailer. He strung electric lines with meters to the trailer as well. And then David and Louise and their 10 children moved into the mobile home and left their house abandoned. The home had become so garbage filled and disgusting. They couldn't even live in the home any longer. It wasn't long after moving into the trailer that Louise was pregnant with child number 11, a daughter she would name Joanna. The summer of 2004, James and Betty came to visit the ever-growing family. 
They walked up to the trailer's front door. They knocked. No one ever answered. The neighbors eventually invited them into their home because it was in August. And August in Texas is the hottest place on the planet. But the family didn't come back. James and Betty would decide, you know, they would drive around and try to find their son and daughter-in-law and all 11 of their grandchildren. Eventually, the Turnpins did go and thank the neighbors for allowing their parents to come wait for them inside. This is one of the very few times they acted like a true neighbor. In 2006, David and Louise will welcome their 12th child, Julissa. They had officially had as many children that Louise had always dreamed of having. But what she never accounted for is having the love and patience to raise that many children. The oldest child, Jennifer, was now 17 years old. Having all of these people in a tiny double wide was putting more stress on them. So David built a cage, one that he could slide food underneath to. This is where they would start locking up suspects for punishment for whatever rule they broke. Sometimes the child could be locked in that cage for days. That is until Jonathan. He learned that he could lift the cage from the bottom and crawl out. So David decided to fix that situation by purchasing a three foot by three foot dog kennel and he began locking the children in there. Joshua told investigators later once he had been rescued that he had spent an entire day in that same kennel for watching a Star Wars video. You look at this and you wonder how many things you did daily without thought of breaking some arbitrary rule that could have landed you living in a dog kennel for 24 hours. And maybe that meant you would get some peanut butter bread or frozen food. And if you're really lucky, it would be completely warmed up. These kids were being punished and they were brutally punished for things that kids do naturally. Some warranted being told not to do that again, but other times you don't spare a second glance. Some point following all 14 people moving into the tiny trailer, mother and father and the two youngest children left the trailer and went to an apartment in Bing Brook, Texas. Jennifer and Joshua were left in charge of the other children in the trailer. On a good day, Louise showed up with a few groceries for all 10 of them, and that was to last for days, not a day, for days. So Jennifer often had to feed the kids simply just ketchup and ice cubes. With mother and father gone, the rules were still in place. The children were not allowed to wash above the wrist, and if any of the children broke these rules, then it was up to Jennifer and Joshua to punish them appropriately. If mother and father figured out that Jennifer and Joshua were not punishing appropriately, then they themselves would receive the punishment. Rock in a hard place here. They had to choose the best in any situation, and they chose whatever it took to keep everybody alive. They all feared that their parents had the capability of killing one of them. Jennifer did actually try to escape and go get help for her brothers and sisters, she asked, you know, how, what she needed to do to get a job, an apartment, and a car. So the neighbor mom that the children were instructed they could no longer play with took Jennifer into town to help her get a job. However, she didn't have a state-issued ID, so she couldn't do anything. She couldn't apply for anything because right now, 
There was no paperwork saying she existed. Without knowing what to do next, Jennifer caved and she called Louise to come and get her. Louise showed up and took Jennifer back to the trailer that she had just escaped from. Nothing ever comes from this incident either. Jennifer wanting away so much that she ran away and asked another person how to survive should have alerted someone to call the police and have the situation investigated. But again, nothing comes from it. Years of suffering could have ended right here. On May 24, 2008, Louise turned 40 and she spiraled into a midlife crisis after being raised in a Pentecostal, she had never seen an alcoholic beverage. She's never smoking a cigarette. She's never had any kind of run-ins with any kind of drugs. And she, at this point, decided she was ready to know what life actually looked like. Life that she was always told was a sin to live. While Louise was rebelling against the sins she was taught, David started looking into other forms of religion, something that spoke to him even more than his Pentecostal faith. He even went as far as looking into snake handling and witchcraft. Louise was drinking often and getting drunk. They were tired of the Pentecostal phase. They, you know, were in search of something more. They no longer were trusting the people within the church. And without trust, there is not faith. Exploring their options include trips to Vegas, where the couple often gambled. Louise acted like a teenager in her 40s, and David had the means to let her party extraordinarily hard. A few months after the partying started, Lisa called to her sister to tell her about her new life as a swinger. This meant the couple drove a few states away. So they could participate without anybody knowing. Louise was dropped off at some motel with this man where they had set up to have sex. She filmed the entire encounter and then returned to David in the car and let him watch the video. Louise's younger sister said Louise told her that the encounter had been rough with that man. A year after the encounter, David drove Louise to the same motel. They rented the same room and David and Louise engaged in sex in the very same bed that Louise had slept with the other man. At this point, Louise was really taking a liking to snake handling religion, even becoming a little on the obsessive side with it. She was attending the rattlesnake roundups in Sweetwater. The women that were dancing around with snakes around their nests, these were people that she absolutely idolized. And she told her sisters about the power she felt when she acted like a woman like that. As the turbans were living away from the responsibilities they had created over the last 17 to 18 years, they were messing up their finances once again. Of course, the trips back and forth to Vegas were racking up charges on their credit cards. And the trips to another state to fulfill some weird sexual fantasy, and of course, the purchasing of clothes, toys, and games, and now some technology that their children would never truly get to have or enjoy. This level of torture only furthered the fact that mother and father remained in control. During this time, Louise took on even more responsibility with her younger sister, Elizabeth, 
the very same one she had kicked out of her home. Elizabeth was now expecting another child with her husband who had recently been having an affair and decided to walk out on her and take their six children with him. So when when Elizabeth had her seventh child, her only home was the Salvation Army shelter. So Louise stepped up. She purchased her home. She paid for all the bills. She furnished the home. She hired her sister, a lawyer, to represent her during the divorce and custody hearings. She helped her gain control of six children. And for Elizabeth, Louise rolled out the red carpet to help her. This was taken away from all the other responsibilities that she had back in Rio Vista and in Benbrook. During Louise's visits to her younger sister, sometimes the children would come, but she never witnessed anything that would cause her to question the care they were receiving. Had anyone paid attention to more than the money that David and Louise threw around, they would have seen a 17-year-old girl, Jennifer. She didn't look like young adults her age. She didn't look like a girl who had even gone through puberty yet. She didn't truly because the malnutrition that was her whole entire life inhibited that. Her arms were no bigger around than a 10 or 12 year old. She was frail in her frame. This told the world that something more was going on at home if someone would just open their eyes a little wider. But money fogs everyone's vision. We don't want to admit it, but when we slide into the spotlight of someone you desperately want attention from, you can't help but find yourself looking the other direction when you should stare at what is happening so that you not miss a thing. David and Louise were more than two adults with a shitload of responsibilities, and they learned that thanks to his very well-paying job, They were able to shift everyone's attention from what was happening in their home behind closed doors to the mountain of affluence they were able to provide as a cover. David loses his job at Lockhead Martin in early 2010 and thanks for all of the hospitality of Louise with her younger sister, the family was in a considerable amount of debt. However, with all of that going on, David still treated himself to a new Mustang, something he had been doing every year for quite some time. Back in Rio Vista on Hill County Road, it wasn't uncommon to see the repo man coming up and going to the Turpin family home. They knocked on the trailer's front door so often they, that eventually they were there was a bounty placed on the Mustang that David drove and the family's minibus that they used to transport everyone around it. Both recently bought and both bought under a lie. They were to pay for them, but before the ink could even dry on the purchasing paperwork, Louise and David were hiding the vehicles out because they were never going to even make that very first payment. David was without a job. Louise had never worked a day in her life. Therefore, there was zero income for the Turpin family outside of the $577 they saw in the royalties of the natural gas well. Louise had time and time again put the family in financial binds, but this was one of the worst times to date. On April 5th of 2010, Johnson County Sheriff's deputies went out to the home on Hill County Road in Rio Vista to serve them with civil papers. 
Wells Fargo was foreclosing on the home that they no longer lived in and the land that the double white sat on. Come May 2010, David and Louise returned to the home for the first time in nearly four years. And they pack up everything that they can. They put their 12 children in their vehicles and they drive off into the night, leaving behind a house that was completely inhabitable. A double wide that was nearly the same, along with all of the family farm's animals that they had accrued over the years and that were starving to death. All of a sudden, the Turpin family was gone. They vanished under the cover of darkness. When the Rio Vista home went up for sale, generally foreclosed homes are as-is buys. When the new buyers of the home requested a walkthrough of the property, they had to sign paperwork stating that if they were to get sick from the conditions of the home during their short walkthrough, the bank was not reliable for anything. No medical costs, no loss of income, nothing. If the new owners wanted a walkthrough of the property, they did so completely at their own risk. Well, this is when pinchers emerge of the conditions of the walls and the ceilings, the floors, after all the garbage, mold, and feces were removed during a biohazardous clean-out, the home was cleaned in the same manner a home where murder occurs is cleaned. And this could still possibly be worse than that. During the clean-out, they found bunk beds set up similar to barracks. There were six sets in a row. None of the beds had actual mattresses on them and some of the headboards had rope tied to them. This was also another form of punishment within the Turpin family home, tying their children to their beds when the makeshift pen was already occupied by another child. In the living room was the skeleton of their pseudo classroom. There were desks and broken chalkboards and educational posters and religious pamphlets everywhere. There were padlocks on the closet cabinets and even the refrigerator throughout the double-wide trailer where 10 out of the 12 children had lived. The land was overran with animals that were coming to feed on the garbage that was left behind. It was like none of the trash was ever removed from the property. They just found other places to put it off, either in abandoned vehicles or that eyesore of a trash trailer that David had dropped on the land many years before and was completely full with stuff falling from the sides as the animals were raiding the garbage. The new owners ended up being neighbors of the Turpin and claimed that it took nearly $30,000 to make that home livable again. The double wide was eventually repossessed from the land before the new owners took over as it was financed by a different institution other than Wells Fargo. On June 4th of 2010, the Turpins returned to California, the place where they first started building their family and the place where it would all come crashing down. One week after arriving in California, the Turpins rented a new home in Marietta, just 65 miles north of San Diego. St. Honor, Honor Drive was a five-bedroom, three-bath house with two large living rooms. It was perfect for a family the size of the Turpins, but it 
too would eventually be turned into what each of the homes owned by them before did. Everything that the Turpin children endured in Texas followed them all the way back to California. The house was big and spacious, but the kitchen, it was still off limits to the children. The only source of income for the Turpin family at this time came from the royalties that of the natural gas well in Rio Vista. These payments continued until March of 2011 when the natural gas company realized David no longer owned the property in which the well lied. Survival came to them through the lines of credit that they were still accumulating as David was unemployed. At this point, Louise had social media and she was painting this beautiful picture of a life that she pretended to have. The family had season passes to Disneyland this was David and Louise's favorite place. They personalized the plates on their vehicles to read DS land to everyone. Louise had it all. She had been married to her husband since she was 16 years old. They created this beautifully large family and David was making all of this money that made it possible for his family to have everything they ever wanted nice cars, nice homes, and a perfect family. But behind closed doors, so much more was going on. And no one had any idea because Louise was the master of the sleight of hand, drawing your attention to all the things that they have and are able to do. But going on, but what is going on, on, but what is going on, But going on in the background was something unimaginable, the torture of their children that she had always dreamed of having. It was a beautiful picture painted with something far more sinister. David's loss of employment should have imploded his family as men instructed to repossess each and everything bought on lines of credit. People from the outside had an opportunity to see what was going on behind the closed doors of the turban home. However, David and Louise slipped through thanks to the cover of darkness. David took his family back to the place that they had first started having children, the land of dreams. Unfortunately for their children, it was a land of nightmares. The level of control that David and Louise had over their children kept any of the children from actually trying to escape. Jennifer tried, but the first obstacle she ran into caused her to break down and call the one person that was able to pick her up and put her back in the very same situation she just tried to run from. That phone call solidified for David and Louise that they had complete 
and total control over their children, and they were free to keep on abusing and neglecting them for as long as they wanted. Thanks to the malnutrition, they were also able to lie about their children and their ages, allowing David and Louise to further exploit them in a way that benefited only David and Louise. What was best for the children was not something they truly looked at because all they wanted was what was best for themselves. Each of the Turpin family's homes were foreclosed on. Those in their community received a small glimpse of what was happening day in and day out in that house. By the time anyone figured out the filth and disgust that the family lived in, the Turpins were long gone. Join me next week as we close up this case of the Turpins and where the children are today. If you know or suspect of child abuse, please call your local authorities or you can call 1-800-422-4453 to report to authorities and hopefully keep them from existing long enough to see something as severe as this. As always, I leave you with one last line. Follow your instincts. That's where true wisdom manifests itself. Much love, the true crime librarian.